0: you enabled this scam and then you tried to cover
1: it up of course they did what do you expect well I don't know why I came here tonight that's why I got a feeling that something right ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair and I'm how I'll get down the stairs clowns to the left to the right here I
2: am stuck in the middle with you yep yes, I'm stuck in the
3: middle with you
1: from Pacifica Radio and in Los Angeles this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, KODX in Seattle, Washington, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your listening pleasure. You can find us on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and, of course, downloadable on your favorite podcast site. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it, uh, it, you know, why do I even bother? Why do I even bother to say, <laughs> oh, a lot breaking today? Let's start uh, here. This is sort
3: of the condition of everything. Yeah,
1: that's just the way it's going. Yep. Uh, That, by the way, is Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. Hi. Desi Doyen, our producer. The Democratic National Committee on Friday sued President Donald Trump's campaign, Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump's son-in-law, the Russian Federation, and WikiLeaks, saying that they all conspired to help Donald Trump win the 2016 presidential election by breaking into DNC computers and stealing tens of thousands of emails and documents. Conspiracy, if it happened here, would be the correct word to use, as we discussed a few days ago with former assistant U.S. attorney Randall Eliasson. Since collusion, which is what Democrats had been using Uh, To describe all of this, uh, collusion is not really a legally defined concept. It would be conspiracy. The lawsuit, the conspiracy lawsuit in Manhattan federal court seeks unspecified damages and an order to prevent further interference with DNC computer systems. In a statement released along with the surprise lawsuit on Friday that reportedly caught Leadership of both parties in Congress off guard, Uh, DNC Chair Tom Perez charged, quote, during the 2016 presidential campaign, Russia launched an all out assault on our democracy and it found a willing and active partner in Donald Trump's campaign. He called that an, quote, act of unprecedented treachery. The lawsuit charges Trump and his associates had existing relationships with Russia and Russian oligarchs that enabled creation of a Trump-Russia conspiracy. Trump has said repeatedly that there was no collusion between his campaign and Russia. I don't know that he has yet said there has been no conspiracy, but I, I think that's what he thinks he means when he says no collusion, no collusion.
3: But who can tell?
1: Uh, Who can tell what he's saying, what anything he's saying means about anything. The 66 page complaint filed in federal court in New York uses the publicly known facts of the investigation into Russia's alleged election meddling to accuse Trump's associates of illegally working with Russian intelligence agents to interfere with the outcome of the election in the legal document. The DNC accuses. Republicans and the Russians of, quote, an act of previously unimaginable treachery. But there are some uh, uh, while there are some multi multiple ongoing investigations at this point of Trump and his campaign, most significantly the special counsel probe by Robert S. Mueller. Tom Perez said the DNC decided to go ahead with a civil suit because the committee believed that there was an ongoing threat of foreign interference in American elections and that it was unclear when Robert Mueller's probe might conclude. And certain claims made in the lawsuit, he said, face statutory expiration dates. The complaint is largely based on information that has been previously disclosed in news reports and uh, subsequent court proceedings. But if the lawsuit proceeds, the president and his campaign aides could be forced to disclose documents uh, via the discovery process and submit to depositions that require them to answer questions under oath. White House officials and the Republican National Committee did not immediately comment on the lawsuit, but Brad Parscale, the chair of Trump's reelection campaign, issued a statement uh, characterizing the suit as bogus, frivolous, partisan, and a meritless action that represents a last-ditch effort by a, quote, nearly bankrupt Democratic Party still trying to counter the will of the American public. Roger Stone, a former campaign advisor to Trump who is named as one of the defendants in the suit, he dismissed the uh, suit in an email to The New York Times as, quote, a left-wing conspiracy theory dressed up as a lawsuit and a fundraising ploy. The DNC complaint is uh, very broad in its claims and stark in its language. It names a long list of defendants, including Donald Trump, His son, Don Jr., uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the Russian government and its intelligence service and a group of former campaign aides, including Stone and Paul Manafort and Rick Gates and George Papadopoulos. The Democrats accused Trump's campaign of being, quote, a racketeering enterprise that worked with Russians and WikiLeaks in a conspiracy that included hacking email servers at the DNC, leaking damaging information to the public. The Trump campaign had extensive warnings, the Democrats allege, of the Russians' activities and intentions, and they embraced the meddling of a foreign power, says the DNC. The lawsuit alleges that... Rather than report these repeated messages that Russia intended to interfere with U.S. elections, the Trump campaign and its agents gleefully welcomed Russia's help. Indeed, the Trump campaign, they say, solicited Russia's illegal assistance and maintained secret communications with the individuals tied to the Russian government, including one of the intelligence agencies, responsible for attacking the DNC. So pretty serious charges. Some journalists, however, appear to be uh, dubious about at least some part of this suit today. Trevor Tim, for example, the executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, tweeted... Along with a, 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 a clip from the filing, he, uh, Trevor, Tim said, quote, I know Assange is unpopular. He's talking about Julian Assange, the, uh,
3: the head of WikiLeaks.
1: Thank you. I know Julian Assange is unpopular, but I hope everyone can see some of these theories in the DNC lawsuit against WikiLeaks are crazy. If it actually was accepted by a judge or jury, countless journalists would be liable for all sorts of campaign-related reporting in the future, says Tim. He cites this paragraph in particular from the complaint, paragraph uh, 170, if you're playing along at home. WikiLeaks and Assange released and transmitted DNC trade secrets, including confidential proprietary documents related to campaigns, fundraising, and campaign strategy, Each release constituted a separate act of economic espionage. Uh, Well, of course, unless WikiLeaks and Assange himself can be shown to have stolen these documents that they released or worked in some fashion in, in, in a conspiracy to steal those documents, simply releasing them... On their own cannot be considered unlawful to my knowledge, uh, particularly as an act of economic espionage. That's where we are. And uh, this uh, mess just continues to get messier. I have not yet been able to read the entire lawsuit, but this filing would appear to be, at least to me, a, a bit of a safeguard, a backstop, if you will, as I read it, against the possibility that Trump could in some way Shut down the Robert Mueller special counsel probe, and if he were to do that, if he did that uh, today tomorrow, presumably this lawsuit uh, against all of those people covering much of that same ground, this lawsuit would continue nonetheless
3: at and least until you know maybe a judge throws it throws out of court, it out right, but-,
1: but as long as that doesn't happen, as long as they're allowed to press forward, it would allow Democrats to. Get folks like Trump and Don Jr. and Jared Kushner, et cetera, on record in sworn depositions. And and they could potentially be able to force them via discovery to turn things over like, you know, tax documents, et cetera. uh, And keep this investigation going for a long time, no matter what Trump ultimately does with the uh, with the Mueller probe, at least if the case, as you say, does is uh, is not tossed out by a federal judge. We'll see. But speaking of accountability, sort of, two federal regulators are fining Wells Fargo $1 billion for forcing customers into car insurance and charging mortgage borrowers borrowers unfair fees. The penalty was announced Friday by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency otherwise known as the OCC. This is the harshest action taken by the Trump administration against a Wall Street bank since they've taken office. Wells Fargo apologized last year for charging as many as 570,000 clients for car insurance that they didn't need. An internal review by Wells Fargo found that about 20,000 of those customers may have defaulted on their car loans and had their vehicles repossessed in part because of these unnecessary insurance costs that Wells Fargo had essentially tricked them into paying for. In October, the bank revealed that some mortgage borrowers were inappropriately charged for Missing a deadline to lock in promised interest rates, even though the delays were apparently Wells Fargo's uh, fault. CEO Tim Sloan said the scandal plagued bank has made progress toward delivering on our promise to review all of our practices and make things right for our customers. They were fined, uh, Wells Fargo was fined $500 million by each of the two agencies, CFPB and the OCC. This is noteworthy, if only because the CFPB, under its current acting director, Mick Mulvaney, uh, appointed by Donald Trump, hasn't uh, brought any real actions. As a congressman, he called for the Bureau to be uh, destroyed entirely. So while this may be the largest such fine in history, some perspective here on this today, Kyle Griffin notes that an analysis by the AP shows the nation's six big Wall Street banks saved at least $3.5 billion in taxes in just the last quarter alone, thanks to the recently enacted Trump tax law. The Consumer Watchdog uh, Committee for Better Banks issued a statement on this uh, Wells Fargo fine on Friday, saying with a $3.7 billion windfall in tax cuts, Wells Fargo can sign over a $1 billion billion Consign over $1 billion for their misdeeds today with money to spare for out-of-touch executive pay and share buybacks while still failing to address the atrocious lies and scheming. That the uh, company has been caught doing over the past year or two.
3: Wow! So that that uh, tax cut bill came in just in time for Wells Fargo to be able to Didn't pay it? out that fine through their tax winnings, and,
1: and still have money left.
3: Exactly uh, that they
1: wouldn't have otherwise had, but for this, uh, but for this tax cut.
3: No, the only thing is, is I I haven't had a chance to look more deeply into it, but I bet those customers who were cheated and who had their cars repossessed will not be made whole.
1: I don't and know and their if their credit made, rating
3: will be restored because that kind of destroys your credit. Uh, yeah, rating.
1: I don't know if they will be made whole, but there is some uh, s- uh part of this agreement that requires customers to get some of their money back. Yeah. So there's that.
3: Don't hurt yourselves. Yes. Mick Mulvaney at CFPB.
1: Right. Well, yeah, don't uh, don't hold your breath, breath for the uh, CFPB to do uh, much on on that score. Former Tea Party Congressman Mick Mulvaney, who I mentioned, turned Donald Trump's director of the White House Office of Management and Budget first. And now he's turned into the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He was muscled into that position a few months ago at the same time that he still remains the head of the White House Office of uh, Management and Budget, the OMB which the CFPB itself is supposed to somehow keep in check. And yet the same guy is now running both of those agencies. So that should make it much easier to keep him in check, I guess. Uh, The appointment is still being challenged. The Mulvaney appointment to the CFPB is still being challenged in court. But for the moment, Mulvaney is heading up both of them. Uh, including that supposedly independent Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It That bureau was created as an independent executive bureau to protect consumers. It was put in place in response to the 2008 global banking and mortgage crisis. And in the years that followed, as a Republican congressman, Mulvaney, who uh, Trump has now put in charge of it, had spent years as a congressman, trying to destroy it, trying to literally trying to kill it, trying to abolish the CFPB. After obtaining control of the bureau for this fiscal year, Mulvaney requested zero federal dollars for the bureau's enforcement budget, zero dollars. According to, uh, Financial journalist David Dayan at The Nation, the CFPB has not recorded one enforcement action in the 135 days since Mulvaney took over last November. Dayan notes Ohio's U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, who's the ranking Democrat on the Senate Banking Committee, he said during Mulvaney's recent semi annual report to Congress last week, the number of enforcement actions on Mulvaney's watch are actually not zero, but negative four, because the agency has withdrawn lawsuits against four payday lenders that charge consumers triple-digit interest rates. Democratic Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who before becoming a U.S. senator, actually helped to set up the CFPB during the Obama administration. She upbraided Mulvaney. During that Senate hearing last week, here's some of her comments to Mulvaney in his role as acting CFPB director concerning, among other things, the Bureau's oversight, uh, at least before Mulvaney was forced in as its head, of fraudulent auto loans to consumers.
0: Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not pretend like you hope that some other agency would do that work, Mr. Mulvaney. They have a history of not doing this. You know, let's do one more example. In 2013, CFPB went after DFS and U.S. Bank and recovered six and a half million dollars for 50,000 active duty members of the military who were targeted for scam car loans. Those 50,000 active duty military would have been out of luck if the CFPB had been abolished in 2012, just like you wanted. Right, Mr. Mulvaney?
1: Um, Again, the OCC has concurrent jurisdiction. Yeah,
0: they have concurrent jurisdiction which they did not use. So I just want to point out one of those 50,000 active duty military members is Ari Cabot Boris from Hull, Massachusetts. When Ari was a 20-year-old soldier, he had good credit, but he was pushed into a car loan that was a scam. When he deployed to Iraq, his dad discovered that the loan and the fees were taking up more than 60 percent of Ari's military paycheck every month. Mr. Boris alerted the CFPB, the agency stopped the scam, and Ari got some money back. You know, in Congress, you repeatedly tried to kill the consumer agency. Since you got to the agency, you have announced that you won't use the exact enforcement tool that CFPB used to stop every single scam that I've mentioned today. You've taken obvious joy in talking about how the agency will help banks a lot more than it will help consumers and how upset this must make me. But here's what you don't get, Mr. Mulvaney. This isn't about me. This is about active duty military. It's about first responders and students and seniors and families and Ari and his dad and millions of other people who need someone on their side when consumers get cheated. You are hurting real people to score cheap political points. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: That was Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts uh, speaking with Mick Mulvaney, who would love to shut down the CFPB. But that's not all that Republicans are doing to screw over the veterans and the the nation's so-called forgotten men and women who Trump pretended to promise to take care of during his 2016 run for president before quickly forgetting about any such thing. It's also not even the only thing that the Republicans are doing to screw over consumers seeking fair and equitable auto loans. This week, the Senate, for the first time, unleashed a disturbing scheme by Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania that reinterprets one little-known, little-used federal law in order to overturn one of the CFPB guidelines that bars racial discrimination in auto loans. But the scheme that Toomey came up with could be used to gut decades of such guidelines in virtually every federal agency. And it requires only a simple majority vote in each house. No need, for example, to overcome a filibuster in the Senate, as would normally be required for most legislation. So while everyone has been distracted by the Trump-Russia noise and much more, Republicans have figured out a new way brand new way to undermine effective governance going back decades and reaching decades into the future and that disturbing and underreported story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As Eric Levitz reports this week at New York Magazine, just a few weeks ago, it looked like America might weather the remainder of the Trump presidency without taking on any more major legislative damage. Paul Ryan's plan to take food and medicine from the indigent, a.k.a. welfare reform, and Donald Trump's proposal to slash illegal immigration in half were both dead on arrival in the Senate. The House could hold a show vote on a balanced budget amendment, but that ludicrous concept, writes uh, Levitz, would never make it past a filibuster. Thus... With most election forecasters projecting a Democratic takeover of the House this fall, there was good reason to think that congressional Republicans would never pass another piece of significant legislation by a party-line vote on President Trump's watch. And then, Senate Republicans discovered a new way to abuse the so-called Congressional Review Act, or CRA, an obscure provision passed by the Republican-led Congress in 1996 and used only once in its 21-year history, at least before Donald Trump followed Barack Obama into office last year. Promptly after taking power in 2017, Congressional Republicans began deploying the CRA with unprecedented frequency. The party used the law to nullify a wide variety of Barack Obama's final regulations, thereby expanding the liberty of coal companies to dump mining waste in streams, preserving the rights of retirement advisors to gamble with their clients' money, Allowing Internet service providers to track and sell consumers' data without seeking their permission. Banning states from setting up retirement savings plans for private sector workers. A betrayal of federalism that served no purpose beyond eliminating one of Wall Street's potential competitors, says Levitz freeing employers from the burden of logging all workplace injuries and ending discrimination against serial labor law violators in the bidding process for government contracts. But after gutting a host of formal regulations adopted by the Obama administration using the CRA, this week Republicans in the Senate came up with a new and novel way of interpreting the Congressional Review Act to kill much more than just those formal rules they have now expanded it to include congressional review of executive agency guidelines instituted decades ago senator pat toomey of pennsylvania and jerry moran of kansas were especially passionate about rolling back safeguards against racial discrimination in auto lending a cfpb Guideline against racial disparities in third-party loans to minorities resulted, for example, in Ally Financial being forced to pay some $80 million in damages and $18 million in penalties after it was found that more than 235,000 non-white buyers paid higher interest rates for auto loans between 2011 and 2013 than their white counterparts did. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Justice Department also penalized Honda, Toyota, and Fifth Third Bank over car lending discrimination under that same agency guidance. But the CFPB's guidance against racial disparity in auto loans, like so many other Democratic Party assaults on individual liberty, quips Levitz, had been established years ago and thus lay outside of the reach of of the Congressional Review Act. But no worries. Toomey, Senator Toomey came of Pennsylvania, came up with a scheme to use the CRA to roll that back as well. And this week, fifty one senators voted to kill that protection against discriminatory auto loans and, under the CRA, prevent the next Democratic administration from being able to reinstate those rules at least short of an act of Congress. But that's not the most troubling part here yet. Killing that protection is bad enough, but arguably far worse. The loophole that Toomey came up with, that he literally invented to to use the CRA to do, if this is allowed to stand, would now open up a raft of executive agency guidelines and consumer protections that could now be killed with a simple majority vote in Congress under the CRA, Senator Toomey told Politico in interview uh, in in an interview quote, "It's a hugely important precedent. It's potentially a big big opening." He's right. It is. It is a huge one, and at least it seems to me, it has gotten very little coverage. Given everything else that is now going on, but this is very important and very troubling on a number of levels. Joining us now to explain what's going on here and why it really matters is James Goodwin. He's a senior policy analyst with the Center for Progressive Reform, a nonprofit research and educational organization working to protect health, safety and the environment. Before joining CPR, James worked as a legal intern for the Environmental Law Institute and the Ecologics Group. James Goodwin, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, this is uh, this is all kind of complicated, but it seems to me to be wildly important and dangerous. So what I'd like to do is sort of step through this quickly to, to make sure that folks understand this scheme that Republicans are now pulling off in really in broad daylight while everyone else is largely looking the other way. So let me start first with the Congressional Review Act itself. What, at least up until this past week, is the CRA? What what is it? What was it initially meant to do, and how was it used before this new Toomey precedent that was set this past week?
2: Well... I- like you said the uh congressional review act was passed in uh, 1996 during the Gingrich uh congress and it was meant as uh a way for congress to review and if uh, appropriate repeal recently finalized rules and i think the intention of it was not to be used that much because it had a a very drastic effect of repealing a final rule mm-hmm. and then there's this other provision that's in the um uh, Congressional Review Act that says that any rule that's repealed, the agency uh, afterwards is going forward is prohibited from issuing another rule in substantially the same form. In other words, not only is that safeguard repealed, the agency can't take another action Mm -hmm. addressing that issue again in the future unless Congress specifically goes back and gives them uh, a new authority to do so. So it has this kind of salt the earth provision Mm -hmm. uh, with it. So it's this very drastic, very dangerous law. And I think because of that, it wasn't intended to be used that much. And that's precisely what we saw for the first 20-odd years of its existence. It was only used once, uh, and it had a really dramatic effect. It was uh, used for this really critical uh, occupational safety and health uh, administration rule to address ergonomics in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And since then, even though ergonomics has become one of the largest workplace sources of of illness, or injury rather, Mm OSHA has not taken a single action to address it in the nearly 20 years since that uh, CRA resolution was adopted.
1: Because it was killed under CRA. And that, uh, as, I, as I understand, uh, James, the CRA was it, it, uh, written initially to overturn regulations that were only adopted in the last 60 days of a presidency. Is that is that correct?
2: Well, so, so here's the thing about the... Uh, Congressional Review Act, is is it has to function with legislation, and that means it has to satisfy the constitutional uh, requirements of uh, bicameralism, passing both houses, and then presentment uh, right. signature by the president. The trick here, of course, is no president is going to sign a, um, a resolution that repeals his own rule. Mm-hmm. So you, there's there's these limited set of circumstances under which the CRA actually becomes relevant, one of which is what we just saw during the first few months of the Trump administration, where you have an outgoing president of one party replaced by an incoming president of the other party, mm. who's also joined by a Congress controlled by the opposite party. Mm-hmm. And so rules that are issued late in the preceding presidential administration are automatically carried over to be uh, considered again during the, the subsequent uh, congressional um, mm-hmm. uh, session. So that's exactly what we saw. So- and just, So that doesn't that comes up more frequently than you might think. It's actually come up uh, Clinton, Bush, or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Bush, uh, Obama, and, uh, and the Trump administration. And nevertheless, it was only used once.
1: Only um, used once. And, those conditions. And it, it doesn't even require a filibuster. It's just a majority vote. Uh, they don't have to overcome a filibuster, just a majority vote in the Senate and in the House. Um, And so, yeah, that's why it was so rarely used. Then the Republicans came in, started using it like crazy to roll back all sorts of things from all sorts of formal uh, rules that were put in place during the last 60 days of the Obama administration. But under the CRA, new formally adopted rules by agencies like the CFPB, which we've been talking about, and the EPA. Uh, those rules it, it take a while to in, uh, to enact by an executive agency. And that's what the CRA was meant to roll back. Um, but there's now this new interpretation that Pat Toomey seems to have uh, come up with concerning, and I guess this is the difference between a formal rule and just guidance or a guideline. What is the difference, if you could help explain that real quickly, between a formal rule put in place by an executive agency versus a guideline or guidance?
2: Sure. So um, in administrative law, you have rules that are, um, you have binding rules, and these are what you normally think of. These are, uh, say, like the EPA regulations that Mm -hmm. limit uh, air pollution from power plants, uh, require automakers to install uh, safety belts in cars, um, so those are binding rules. Uh, agencies issue somewhere between, you know, several thousand of those a year. Uh, and these uh, are all uh, subject to the Congressional Review Act. Uh, we also have this other universe of agency actions. Uh, they're generally referred to as guidance documents. Mm-hmm. But in general, um, they're, they're, uh, uh, the, the, the common characteristic to them all is they don't have binding effect on their own. They, don't, uh, have, they don't. they're meant to.
1: They don't have binding effect on their own. You say,
2: correct. They're non-binding uh, within the four corners of the document. Usually, they're meant to interpret other rules, explain mm. uh, binding rules. If there's a question about what a rule means, mm-hmm. uh, explain how an agency plans to implement uh, a particular rule. If there's a, a lack of clarity on that issue, mm-hmm. so it, it, what? Basically, what I'm describing for you is guidance exists to to promote regulatory certainty, and mm-hmm. this is. The great irony of this whole situation is that the vast, vast majority of guidance documents are produced are produced by agencies at the request of, of industry precisely because they um, generate the kind of regulatory certainty that industry wants so that they know what their obligations are going forward, mm-hmm. what their responsibilities are going forward, in in the vast majority of
1: circumstances,
2: industry wants that regulatory certainty. There are a narrow set of circumstances where they don't want that regulator or that regulatory certainty.
1: Which I and guess those are going to be the cer- Which I guess would be uh, for example this rule concerning racial discrimination in auto lending. Absolutely. The uh, the uh, auto industry uh, did not like that at all or at least the auto lending industry did not like that at all. So uh, but that Absolutely. was done as guidance, as a guidance document, not as a formal rule. So what is this scheme that Toomey has now come up with here to work around the original intent of the CRA, um, you know, to, to give Congress the right to overturn a formal rule. What has he now come up with that has first been exploited in the Senate this past week to kill racial discrimination in auto lending?
2: So the story with the Congressional Review Act is it really represents the worst kind of statute. On the one hand, it's uh, a very dangerous statute. It allows bare majorities in Congress to enact legislation to repeal uh, popular safeguards, Mm -hmm. but it's also incredibly poorly written. Uh, And that's really what we're dealing with right now, is sorting out some very poorly written provisions in the Congressional Review Act. So uh, we started out by discussing what is a rule, Mm -hmm. uh, and does that include binding rules, does that include guidance documents? So the, the fact of the matter is, is agencies issue literally tens of thousands of guidance documents every year. There's just simply no way that the Congressional Review Act could be used uh, as intended for Congress to review in uh, all those guidance documents. So we're literally facing the situation where a a, a law can't mean what it literally says. So there was this open question about whether, because uh, it adopted this very broad definition of rule that seemingly included both binding rules and non-binding guidance, whether and to what extent the Congressional Review Act included or non-binding guidance documents. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, older opinions um, that the GAO has done, the, the Congressional Research Service has said, as best as we can tell, you know, a literal reading says that this includes non-binding guidance documents, but it was an open question. And what Toomey has essentially done is he had that question answered and then is now acting on it with uh, um, uh, Moran of, of Kansas. And this is the first time that they've ever actually followed through with uh, taking a vote under the the Congressional Review Act to repeal uh, a non-binding guidance.
1: So do I understand it correctly, then, that what Toomey did was he saw this uh, issue uh, that that bars uh, racial discrimination in auto-lending uh, that all these lenders had to pay off millions of dollars uh, because they were uh, discriminating against minorities. Uh, so the uh, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, put in place not a formal binding rule, but they put in a guidance against this practice. And then Toomey uh, appears to have gone to the Government Accountability Office and said, hey, this uh, guidance document... This appears to me to be a rule that we could review under the CRA, am I right? The GAO said yes, uh, we think you are. And then that he says started the 60 day clock to allow them to uh, to, to allow uh, Congress to overturn that that guidance document. This would seem to mean James Goodwin that, They can go back decades now if they want and look at various guidance documents that were never passed as formal rules by these agencies and overturn all of them as well. Is that the precedent that has now been set here?
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're seeing now. There's over 20 years of stuff that Congress, members of Congress can now either, you know, they don't have to get a formal GAO opinion on this. Uh, uh, They can just find a sympathetic agency and believe me, the agencies are run by anti-regulatory heads now, and they are sympathetic, uh, they can just slowly drip these guidance documents over to Congress for review, because that's what, what triggers the, the, um, the review process. Mm-hmm. Is uh, There's this provision in the Congressional Review Act that says you have to formally submit this, uh, uh, anything that's a rule, so binding rule or non-binding guidance, uh, and then that's what actually triggers the uh, Congressional Review period. So if they weren't submitted, uh, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, uh, because it was an open question, whether they were, um, uh, uh, covered by or eligible for review mm-hmm. under the CRA at all. Now, now you can go back and either have the GAO issue an opinion or just have the agency, uh, send it over of their own volition. Uh, and you know, that, that may be what we see going forward. And, um, you know, I, that, that, that creates a lot of dangers, um,
1: yeah. Is this in
2: a lot of ways?
1: Yeah. Is, I mean, is this as bad as it seems? I mean, it, it was one thing when they were just sort of dealing with, oh, you know, whatever the Obama administration sort of did in the last 60 days. But now they can go back years and overturn kind of anything they want uh, in in Congress at these executive agencies. What What sort of things could now be undone? And again, this is without even having to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. What, what sort of things could be now undone if this Toomey precedent is allowed to stand uh, in place and is applied to other guidance uh, documents that may be decades old?
2: Right. So, I mean, it, really the sky is the limit, because like I said, the Congressional the Congressional Review Act uh, defines uh, the concept, or appears to define the concept, of rule very broadly. So the question is, is we have to... To identify which of these uh, particular guidance documents are the ones giving industry uh, heartburn, and like I said, the vast majority of them are not don't do that, but they are going to find some that they do dislike. So it could be something like um, enforcement guidelines from EPA on you know distinguishing um, uh, wetlands that are subject to to uh, Clean Water Act protections mm-hmm. versus those that aren't. Um, maybe planning documents by the Bureau of land management for for uh, for doing um, resource extraction versus uh, uh, um, outdoor recreation that sort of thing for mm-hmm. public lands so that just sort of gives you an idea of, of uh, uh, at least one of the main dangers of this new um, uh, new precedent is we have all these critical safeguards that we thought were in place that are now uh, could uh, simply vanish because um, Congress, the, the Republicans have uh, the bare majorities in the, um, Congress. Uh, they have uh, uh, yeah. an acquiescent president in Trump, and really, all that's keeping the, the only limitation they face is time. And, uh, and you know, coincidentally, the Congressional Review Act places strict limits on uh, debate time. Um, you can uh, ram these three, these things through uh, in a few weeks. In fact, I've been studying. the All the um, Congressional Review Act resolutions from the last 15, or from the last year, the the 15 resolutions that have already passed, Mm -hmm. some passed in 12 days, Uh, some took at most a few weeks.
1: And Um, so they could do a lot of damage between now and the end of this session when uh, Democrats at least hope they take back one chamber. That would stop this. But until then... Uh, they could really run roughshod over decades of uh, executive agency policy. Uh, James, I'm I'm almost out of time here, but is there, uh, will there be a legal challenge? Because I'm wondering, this seems like a separation of powers issue, really. I mean, I'm all for congressional oversight of the executive branch, uh, but it seems like this could really, all but, Cripple executive agencies From being able to do their work at all Without immediate interference On just about anything and everything By the legislative branch Which, you know, with, with that much control Of these executive agencies Hell, the, Congress may just may as well be Running the agencies themselves It, it seems mm-hmm.
2: to me Well, it's funny that you ask that Because you remember I said That the Congressional Review Act Was a poorly written statute mm-hmm. Well, part of what they did was it includes its provisions saying that uh, most of the actions and decisions taken under the Congressional Review Act are insulated against judicial review. Now, because of that, it's hard to, um, it's hard to uh, figure out how exactly you're going to bring legal challenges and how you get over that hump and whether that, uh, that provision is even enforceable at all, and if so, under what circumstances.
1: You mean the, C- uh, the CRA yep. says that if Congress does that, you know it overturns a uh, regulation or a rule a rule or now a regulation that it cannot be reviewed it can't be challenged by the uh, in in court
2: that's what it appears to say now I've heard three different interpretations of what that really means mm-hmm. and that just sort of underscores the point I was making earlier. It's a really poorly written statute, but that's just one of these clouds that hangs over this uh, over this latest action is um you know what what uh, what legal options are available to the public interest community there is a a lawsuit currently pending uh, challenging one of the uh, resolutions uh, that was passed last year uh, brought by i think the defenders of wildlife Mm -hmm. and so that'll be an interesting trial balloon to see Mm -hmm. how the court um, tests that
1: provision and what they ultimately do with it but can't the CRA itself never mind what it's been used to overturn can't the CRA itself Be challenged in, in other words, go to court to say, "Hey, the CRA was never intended to also overturn, you know, mere uh, guidance guidelines. Uh, It was meant to overturn formal rules, which have a a long process that you know of putting in place and so forth. But it was not meant to overturn guidance. Isn't that something in and of itself that could be challenged uh, for the CRA itself?
2: Um, It's it's not it's not clear exactly. Mm. I think." It may become clear if uh, you know. Certainly, I would be surprised if there's not a lawsuit brought to test that question. But like I said, if uh, a judge may point to that provision, saying that uh, actions and decisions, determinations made pursuant to the Congressional Review Act, including a determination that something is a rule for the purposes of the Congressional Review Act, may not actually um, be judicially reviewable because of that provision. But you know, we'll see. You know, maybe a judge. We'll look at this ridiculous statute and have to create some rule of reason and, and cut through that provision. Uh, I mean, I, that's
1: my hope. Yeah, my hope too, because this seems insane. Last question for you, James. Uh, isn't this something that could ultimately now come back to haunt Republicans? I mean, if Democrats regain control of Congress, wouldn't this give them the power to pretty much cancel both uh, rules within the you know the past sixty days, but also new guidelines that are, have been put in place? by the trump administration really going back to day one of his administration
2: well see that's the problem with the congressional review act is i think when democrats signed on to it and a lot of them did back in the 90s they perceived it as having uh as being um bipartisan but you have to keep in mind there's that provision the the uh, salty earth provision and um you know if if Democrats want to get rid of a deregulatory regulation or a deregulatory guidance that the Trump administration uh, ultimately the goal is to replace that with something stronger mm-hmm. and they may, have prevent, they may prevent themselves from doing just that because of that salty earth provision so it doesn't work both ways for both parties. That is why the Congressional Review Act is such a foolish uh, decision for all the Democrats who signed on it, onto it back in the day um, and you know it, there may be ways around that Um, So, for example, maybe if there's certain things that they do, like, say, on abortion or something, regulations against abortion, then you would want to have that salt the provision to tie future Republican administration's hands on it. But for something like environmental safeguards, uh, that that could potentially backfire; it'd be disastrous
1: in a lot of ways. We are uh, we'll keep our eye on this because I think this is going to be used a lot between now and then, particularly between now and you know the November elections. Particularly since, uh, uh, as as Republicans uh, are justifiably concerned about their fate. Uh, by the way, that it, 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 when they uh, overturn a regulation with a simple majority in both houses under the CRA, does it then need to be signed by the president? Correct, yeah, because of legislation. Gotcha. So even if the Democrats took both houses, they would not be able to undo the damage that uh, the Trump administration is doing, at least as long as he's in office. James Goodwin of the uh, Center for Progressive Reform. You can follow their work at ProgressiveReform.org. Really appreciate you joining us and, and clarifying all of this today, James. Thank you for having me. You bet. By the way, uh, Wikipedia. Describes salt, the earth, salting the earth as the ritual of spreading salt on conquered cities to symbolize a curse on their re inhabitation. Basically, it means destroying everything so that it can't be used again.
3: Not only that, but when you put salt on soil, nothing can grow there, it kills the soil.
1: Right. Which is where this comes from, right. and so he's basically saying, you know, they're they're not only removing these uh, these regulations, this guidance, these rules, whatever you want to call it, but they're also making it impossible for them to be reinstated in the future.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, kind of like burning the oil fields, I guess.
3: Um, in the Iraq War, yeah. the original Gulf War. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Quick break. And we are back with uh, something or other. I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, James Comey memos. We'll talk about that for a second. Right here on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Not long after we got off the air on Thursday night, the memos, the the so-called Comey memos from uh, his conversations with Donald Trump, both uh, before and not long after he was uh, inaugurated, those memos that James Comey, the now-fired FBI director, had uh, created right after those meetings with Donald Trump to memorialize what he thought was really bizarre behavior and bizarre meetings. Those were released. They were, uh, the Republicans in the House had. Been trying to get them for months and months. They finally got them. And then literally 39 minutes after they received them, they were leaked in full to the AP and to others. And a lot of people have been talking about them, obviously, over the past 24 hours. They seem to pretty much uh, match up exactly with what James Comey has been telling us happened in those meetings, these contemporaneous notes, what James Comey and others have uh, uh, said he had told them at the time. A lot of folks are fixated, of course, on um, Donald Trump's own fixation with uh, the, the hookers, as described in the uh, the so-called uh, Steele dossier, um, and uh, this comment from uh, Trump where Comey says that he told him that uh, Putin said Russian hookers are the the most beautiful in the world and all that kind of stuff that they've been looking at. But what caught my eye here was this section near the end of one of the memos where Comey was was meeting in the Oval Office with Donald Trump. And um, here's what Comey says. He says, I tried to interject several times to agree with him. They were talking about the leaks that had happened Uh, about Trump's phone calls with foreign leaders that had somehow leaked out and were embarrassing. Uh, Comey says, I tried to interject several times to agree with him about the leaks being terrible but was unsuccessful. When he finished, I said I agreed very much that it was terrible that his calls with foreign leaders leaked. I said they were classified and he needed to be able to speak to foreign leaders in confidence I then explained why leaks purporting to be about FBI intelligence operations were also terrible and a serious violation of the law. I explained that the FBI gathers intelligence in part to equip the president to make decisions and if people run around telling the press what we do, the ability to do that will be compromised. I said I was eager to find leakers and would like to nail one to the door as a message I said something about it being difficult, and he replied, Donald Trump replied, that we need to go after the reporters and referred to the fact that 10 or 15 years ago, we put them in jail to find out what they know, and it worked. He mentioned uh, Judy Miller, Judith Miller by name, the then New York Times reporter who had uh, helped leak the identity of a covert uh, CIA agent, Valerie Plame. Uh, Comey says, I explained that I was a fan of pursuing leaks aggressively, but that going after reporters was tricky for legal reasons and because DOJ tends to approach it conservatively. He replied by telling me to talk to Jeff Sessions and see what can be done about being more aggressive. The president then wrapped up our conversation by returning to the issue of finding leakers. I said something about the value of putting a head on a pike as a message. He replied by saying, It may involve putting reporters in jail. He kept bringing this up over and over again.
3: In other words, impervious to all of the information that everyone probably had told him that, you know, that's really tricky. Well, like he had just
1: been told impervious to the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment, which talks about freedom of press.
3: Yeah. And and impervious to facts.
1: Comey talks, uh, Comey uh, quotes, uh, puts him in direct quotes, puts Trump in direct quotes here to say about putting reporters in jail, quote, They spend a couple of days in jail, make a new friend, and they are ready to talk. Uh, So his targeting of journalists here is, you know, is not just a campaign trope. It's not just something to uh, fire up his base. You know, it's not unusual to hear Trump talking like that, uh, you know, about uh, throw him in jail. They're all, you know slime balls or whatever it is that he calls the media, that he calls journalists, that he's been doing for years. But he's not just doing that for show. He's doing that for real, in private, when he's talking to the then director of the FBI repeatedly saying, hey, can we lock up some journalists?
3: Yeah, he That's really,
1: troubling to me.
3: He really means it and he actually thinks it's a good idea.
1: Imagine if... You know, word had leaked out that Barack Obama was talking about, hey, we need to jail some journalists. We need to throw them in jail for a few days. They'll make a new friend. That'll get them to talk. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how the right wing would be freaking out about those kind of comments? Such as it is, uh, this his comments in the Comey memos here about uh, journalism has not gotten much attention because they're all looking at Russia and the hookers and everything. But... Um, That's very troubling. The way that this president of the United States thinks and believes and wishes that we could just start throwing journalists in jail. I find that wildly troubling about a already wildly troubling presidency. All right. Uh, Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, James Goodwin of the Center for Pro- for Progressive Reform. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we have ever done, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the BradBlog until they throw me in jail. Uh, until they do, by the way, or when they do, I would especially appreciate those of you who stop by bradblog.com/donate to help us stay on your public airwaves to continue reporting what we believe is uh, the most important stuff that you need to know about every day, no matter what the rest of the corporate media is talking about bradblog.com slash donate thanks to those of you who have stopped by to sign up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like all right that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world